Please open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at the second half of verse 18. Now we'll read verses 16 through 18 for the sake of context. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So we're going to focus on that last part this morning. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to open Your Word together. Father, we ask that You would open the eyes of our hearts this morning. Your truth. We ask for the Spirit's help knowing that that I can't do this and that, that no one here can do this, but that this is the Spirit's work. We ask for help and for grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we continue to look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians. And we have already said much about prayer from from observing Paul's pattern here. And over the last several weeks, we began to look at Paul's request or his petitions for these Ephesian saints. And we noted that the first request was, was very broad. That the primary thing he prayed for was that they would know their God, that they would have Holy Spirit led wisdom and insight into the scriptures, that they would know God better. And then last week we began to see that Paul is now getting more specific with his request to God on their behalf. And he prayed in verse 18 that that these believers would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And I want to review this for a moment and say a few more things about this because unless this is absolutely crystal clear to us, we will not understand what Paul is praying for in this text this morning. Paul is asking God to enlighten the eyes of the hearts of these believers. And we saw that to enlighten means to illuminate, to to cast light upon something. And Paul does not pray for their minds to be enlightened, but, but for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. And the reason Paul does this is because the heart in early cultures represented a large part of a person's being. It's not just about thoughts. It represented the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, the the conscience, the disposition, and even the bias we saw. So essentially, Paul is not praying for just their minds to be enlightened to this truth. In other words, this is not a prayer for the Ephesian Christians to understand more facts but rather for their hearts to be more open to the truth. 
I described this last week as removing the bias against God from our hearts. Remember, Sproul pointed out that, that at the moment of regeneration, the eyes of the heart are, are somewhat opened. But this is just the beginning. In other words, although we have new hearts as born-again believers, there are still attitudes, presuppositions, affections, desires, and, and thoughts that make us bias against the truth. In the example that I briefly mentioned last week is the the person who converts to Christianity and has a presupposition that there is absolutely no distinction between a man and a woman. Therefore, whatever a man can do, a woman must be able to do. And so this person has a, a feminist worldview. Now, does regeneration change that instantly? No. So they read a text which says that, that a woman can't preach and, and, and they, they think to themselves, this can't be saying what it seems to be saying. It can't mean that, so, so it must mean something else. Let's just ignore that for now because that's, that's not right. We see this. This was me, in fact, wrestling against this. What do you, what do you mean a woman can't be a pastor? There's women pastors all over the place. But this is how I, how I thought as a young Christian. And even as believers, again, we, 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 we fight against or we ignore truth because cultural norms have biased our hearts in a way that it hinders us from just openly accepting what the Word clearly says. We, we also see this when genuine Christians refuse to be confronted with truth. Many professing Christians will not sit in a church where where they hear truth that convicts them in certain areas of their lives. That they don't mind hearing strong preaching on certain topics, but but if you but if you emphasize truth in, in certain areas where you really step on their toes, they won't tolerate it. And it's often frightening to see how genuine Christians can, can literally be resistant to the plain teaching of Scripture. But there is bias there in the heart. Or how many Christians avoid studying certain things because they fear what Scripture may say. They fear the convictions that it might bring. I can remember many years ago saying, I think there's something to this Sabbath thing. I'm a little bit afraid to study this because this might mean that I have to change a lot of things in my life. But we often approach things this way, don't we? We're not just totally open to the Scripture and say, just tell me what to do. Sometimes we, we are afraid of what we might be told to do and actually avoid it. This is not being open to the truth. This is being closed to the truth. So the eyes of the heart being enlightened means the heart becoming more open to the truth of God's Word. The bias is removed. We are more accepting of the truth. But not only that, it also means to be more convinced of the truth. Another thing I pointed out, which which really does bear repeating, is that we all know more truth than we can obey, don't we? Why do Christians sin against God when they know it's wrong? Why why, why do we lust when we know that it's sinful? Why, Why do we covet when we know it's a transgression of God's law? Why do we gossip when we know that it's sinful and destructive? Is it because you don't know enough facts about the Bible? No. 
The problem is that the truth is not impressed upon our hearts in such a way that it leaves great conviction, conviction that is greater than the desire to sin. You know intellectually what you should do, but you lack conviction which comes when that truth is impressed upon the heart in such a way that only the Holy Spirit can do. And one thing that I really failed to emphasize last week is the reason why Paul is praying that God would would do this is because this is, in fact, the work of the Holy Spirit. Illumination, enlightenment. He's using these words instead of learning because this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this makes this a difficult text to preach on because I can't illuminate your hearts to show what Paul wants his readers to learn. The only thing that I can do is show you why Paul wanted their hearts to be enlightened and pray that God would enlighten our hearts in this same way. Paul wants the eyes of their hearts to be opened. It's important for our hearts to be opened to all of Scripture. But there are three specific things that Paul wants the eyes of their hearts to be opened to. And this should cause us to pay great attention. Because just saying the eyes of your heart need to be enlightened is enough. Of course it needs to be enlightened to all of Scripture, but Paul is going to isolate three specific things that he wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened to. And we looked at the first one last week. Paul wrote in the first part of verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. And so we saw that Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to to know experientially the great hope they have received in Christ. If they have repented of their sins, if they have trusted in Christ for salvation, they have great hope in Christ. And having an intellectual understanding of the concept of hope in Christ is not enough. These believers needed the Holy Spirit to enlighten them to really understand and know the gospel hope. And so today we look at the second thing that that Paul desired for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened to. He says in the second half of verse 18, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts to know how rich they are because of the glorious inheritance they have as believers. Now, why is Paul praying for this? He he already spoke about this inheritance in, in verses 11 and 14. We know this. In verse 11, we read, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. And remember, we saw that that our inheritance is eternal and incorruptible and undefiled. It it does not fade away. It is reserved for us in heaven. It was prepared for us before the foundation of the world. We have forgiveness. We have eternal life with Christ in a new heaven and earth. We are joint heirs with Christ. We receive glorified bodies and glorified minds. And we experience some of this glorious inheritance here and now and more when we die in the fullness of it when Christ returns. Our inheritance is beyond measure. We inherit a place where there's no suffering or pain or or weeping, no more injustice, no more sin, no more of the, the, the effects of sin. 
This is, in fact, a, a glorious inheritance as Paul described, but, but Paul already communicated this to his readers. So why does he mention it again? If he already told them that they had obtained a glorious inheritance, why is he now praying that they would know what is the richest of their glorious inheritance? What is Paul really praying for here? He's praying for them not to simply intellectually grasp the riches of the inheritance that God has provided. No, as we already saw, this goes beyond the mere communication of information. This is not just about understanding more facts about heaven. Paul already gave the facts. In him, in Christ, We've obtained an inheritance and the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee that we will in fact receive more of our inheritance when we die and the fullness of it when Christ returns. Paul laid down those facts already and now he is praying that the Holy Spirit would impress that truth upon their hearts in a convincing and convicting way. You and I, dear friends, we know the facts, don't we? We have obtained an inheritance. We know this. But, but how many of us have, have bias against this truth remaining in our hearts that, that calls us to, to have doubt? In other words, we struggle to be thoroughly convinced of this truth because of the closeness of our, of the eyes of our heart. But perhaps we say, yes, I believe this is true, but, but you can't say it with great conviction. You, you believe it just a little. It's only a small reality to you. you. You are hoping that it is true, that you have an inheritance, but it's not a great reality to you. You feel within yourself that you are confident of this without a shadow of doubt. Oftentimes, just like how we know the commandments and disobey them anyways, we know that we have an inheritance, but, but, but we don't fully grasp this in a convicting way that, that changes our very lives. And perhaps there are things in our lives that even work against us fully being convinced of this truth. There are things in our lives that, that increase the bias instead of removing it God says we have an inheritance. And instead of being convinced of this truth, without a shadow of doubt, we listen to the world and we listen to our flesh and we listen to the devil himself. Our heart is biased against what God says. God says you have an inheritance. But you have doubt in your mind because the world says you can't believe anything you have not seen. You cannot believe anything that has not been proven to you scientifically. And even though we know this is nonsense, what does it do? It plants a little seed of doubt or bias in our hearts. God says, you have an inheritance. But others say you can't believe the Bible. It's just an old book of fairy tales. Did God really write 
the Scriptures? Did he really inspire the Scriptures? Christianity cannot be proven to be true. And though we know these things to be false, they can cause us to to be just a little bit biased against what the Scripture says. Just, Just cast a little seed of doubt. God says you have an inheritance. But the devil says, just like he did to Eve, did God really say that? And once you begin thinking that, you're half conquered. Did, did, did he really say this? Is, is this what he really means? God says you have an inheritance. You are rich. You are rich, but your flesh says this inheritance can't be better than the pleasures of the riches of this world. And so we are biased against the truth. God says you have a rich, glorious inheritance. And the devil whispers into your ear, Christianity does nothing more than get you in trouble, make you the odd one in society, perhaps cause you to lose your job and maybe even lose your life. What kind of inheritance is that? And though we know that Satan is the father of lies, we allow him to sow little seeds of doubt in our hearts. And though we know that the wisdom of this world is foolish and wicked, we allow the world to sow little seeds of doubt into our hearts. And though we know that that in our flesh dwelleth no good thing, we allow our flesh to sow little seeds of doubt. And these little seeds of doubt increase our prejudice or bias against the truth of what Scripture says and ultimately against God Himself. How easy is it for one person to go to another person and slander a third person and that changes your disposition towards that person that was slandered? Dear friends, who is Satan? He's the slanderer. This this is what he desires. For you you to believe that you can't trust what you hear in this word. And and, and we listen to him just a little bit. And this increases even the natural bias that we have. It it causes our presuppositions to go even more so against the word and against this truth. These little seeds of doubt increase our prejudice and our bias. And that bias against the truth can, can wreak havoc in the Christian's life. Now let us look just at the, some of the consequences of doubting this inheritance. And, and here we begin to see why Paul is actually emphasizing this. How important it is. Here we begin to see how, just how practical this theology really is. What, what are the consequences of not being fully persuaded of your inheritance? Out of all things that a Christian needs to be enlightened to, why does Paul say you need to be enlightened to the fact that you are rich with a glorious inheritance? What's the big deal? What kind of fruit does doubting this produce? Let me give you just a few. Number one, it affects your hope. We, we, we just saw last week how essential hope is. A, a hopeless Christian is an unproductive Christian. A, a hopeless Christian will lack boldness and steadfastness. A hopeless Christian will lack joy and zeal. 
A hopeless Christian is a miserable Christian. And, and we saw that, that hope is expectation of good to come. But what is the good to come that we hope for? The full possession of our glorious inheritance. So if we are not confident in the fact that we have an inheritance, what are we hoping for? You, you cannot have hope that is expectation of good to come without an actual good to come. If we don't believe there is a good to come, what do we hope for? If we are not assured of our inheritance, we will not be hopeful Christians. We will be miserable Christians. And secondly, if we doubt our inheritance, we will be afraid to leave this world. We will be afraid to die. Paul could honestly say with absolute conviction that to die is gain because he was fully assured that to die meant to be present with Christ enjoying his glorious inheritance. It is critical that, that Christians not fear death because there are grave consequences to fearing death. I can remember as a, as a, as a younger Christian in my mind, seeing missionaries being willing to risk their lives and take the gospel someplace, I would think to myself, what is wrong with these people? These people must be superhuman. I mean, I believe I'm going to heaven, but I'm afraid to die. What was that? Not being fully convinced that there was something far more glorious than this life. Dear friends, if you are afraid to die, you will hold back. You won't live for Christ. If you are afraid to die, you will sin and deny your Lord to avoid death. I think it was Thomas Watson who said, he who fears death more than sin will sin in order to avoid death. If someone put a gun to your head right now and said, sin or die, what would you do? Well, it depends on how assured you are of your inheritance. Depends on whether or not you fear death. Why did Peter deny his Lord? Ultimately, he was afraid that it would cost his life. And though he was restored, he was scarred by what he did. He wept bitterly. And God ultimately used Peter's failure and sin for his glory. But Peter did, in fact, sin and grieve his Savior. And I can guarantee you that if Peter could live again and do that again, he would not deny him again. Although he understood that it all happened in God's providential plan, I wonder if Peter went to, went to the grave with that thought in his mind. Not that he should have. Not that he had to. But that he was ashamed. I mentioned before the, the martyrdom of, of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer in 1555. Men who burned at the stake for their faithfulness to God. But there was another man at that same time who was being persecuted for his faith. That man was Thomas Cranmer. He was imprisoned, persecuted, and actually forced to watch his two friends, Ridley and Latimer, burn at the stake for, for holding to the same Protestant faith that he did. 
As they burned those two men, they made Thomas Cranmer get in a tower and watch them burn as a warning, calling him to recant of his Protestant heresy. And after suffering and seeing that, in a moment of weakness, what did Thomas Cranmer do? And here was a man who, who, was, a, who was an important English reformer. What did he do? He recanted of his Protestant faith and then soon realized that Mary wanted to make an example out of him, so she was going to burn him at the stake anyways. His denial of his Lord did not spare his life. Now, Cranmer did redeem himself because before he was burned at the stake, he was told to recant publicly in a pulpit. And what did he do? He used that as an opportunity to speak truth, telling of how it was wrong to write with his hand what was not in his heart. And he also let everyone know that the Pope was the Antichrist at that time. And after that, they pulled him down and took him directly to the stake to be burned. But he did something interesting and said something interesting. When he was tied to that stake, what did Thomas Cranmer do? He stuck his right hand into the fire and said, this unworthy hand, which was used to deny my Lord, burns first. And he actually held that hand into the fire so that it would burn because it was so unworthy. But think about the shame that man felt. He denied his Lord to save his life, and it, and it didn't even save his life. And he was so ashamed that he held his hand into the fire and let it burn and wither because it was unworthy. In that moment of weakness, what, what was it that caused Cranmer to deny his Lord? It was a fear of death. Fear of death will, will cause men to sin and to deny their very Savior in the process. And unless it has been thoroughly impressed upon our hearts that we do, in fact, have a glorious inheritance, we will fear death. And that fear of death will rule our lives. How many people right now are still not back in church because of a fear of dying from COVID? Literally wrecking havoc on their lives and their faith. It's a fear of death because they are not convinced of a glorious inheritance in a world to come. But thirdly, doubting your inheritance will also make you afraid to, to commit your life to serving Christ. Paul says that we are to offer ourselves as, as living sacrifices to the Lord. This means that we are to often deny ourselves pleasures and things that we want to pursue in this life. Being a living sacrifice means living our lives for the glory of Christ. This means denying ourselves and picking up our cross daily and following after Him. And this is costly, dear friends. This may cost us jobs and promotions. It may cost us friends and finances. It may cost us comfort. It may cost our reputation. And it may cost our very lives. There's a reason why we read in Scripture of Jesus saying, come, follow me. And people saying, no. They understood the cost. And they were not convinced that they were riches, that were more glorious than their riches here on earth. 
Dear friends, unless you know and are persuaded, not just in your head, but in your heart, that you indeed have a glorious inheritance awaiting you in the world to come, you will not live sacrificially for Christ in this life. The cost of following Christ is far too great. Perhaps you will be a nominal Christian, but you will never go all in. And perhaps that's many of our problems. We're nominal Christians. Why? Because we know the cost is too high of sacrificing for the sake of Christ. Dear friends, do you have a hard time giving up comfort and ease for Christ? Do you have a hard time working as as unto the Lord? Listen, it takes sacrifice to to always work in a way that pleases God, not doing eye service, but working as unto the Lord. Do you really struggle to to work that way? Because you know what? It would be a lot easier to just be, be lazy and not work at all. Do you struggle to be faithful in that? How do you go on grinding faithfully day after day when it is difficult, painful, and you don't even make much money for doing it? How do you sustain that? Listen, you need to be convinced that you have a glorious inheritance because of all you have for being faithful is the little paycheck that you receive is not enough motivation for you. And dear friends, that might not sound spiritual, but but listen, you and I are, are created in such a way that we weigh things. This is why Jesus said, count the cost. We are creatures who count cost. We're, we're not just superhumans who say, I can work a thousand hours a week and I'll do it for free because I don't, I'm not driven by motivation. That's not how we work. That's not how God created us to operate. But fourthly, doubting your inheritance will tempt you to pursue worldly riches above all else. If you are not convinced of your riches in the world to come, you will be allured to the riches of this world. Why did the ruler, the rich young ruler, refuse to sell all that he had and follow Christ? Because the riches of this world meant far more to him than eternal riches. Listen, following after Christ often means not pursuing things that would make us rich in this world. Following after Christ means you don't cheat people to increase your profits. Following after Christ often means you don't, you don't neglect, it means you don't neglect your children for the sake of getting rich. You don't neglect your families for the sake of getting rich. And following after Christ often means you don't neglect having a family for the sake of getting rich. How often does that happen today? I would have a lot more money if I didn't have four kids and an 18-year-old eating machine in my house. He lifts weights though, so he can eat a lot more. It's costly. Diapers, clothes. I mean, it seems like every week that they're in a different size clothes. It's costly. But, but why do we do it? You see, I'm okay with that sacrifice. Why? Because I am persuaded of the riches of my glorious inheritance. I'm not missing out on anything by not being rich in this world. 
No amount of wealth in this world compares to the riches of our glorious inheritance. Unless we are convinced of this, we will feel as though we are missing out in this world. And that will cause us to be allured to the wealth of this world in an ungodly way. Perhaps some or many of these Ephesians saints were were those who burned their occult books that we read about in the book of Acts. What a great financial loss that was. Some some scholars estimate that the cost was about $500,000 worth of books and some estimate in the millions. All of these Christians had these occult books. They were converted and they had maybe perhaps millions of dollars worth of merchandise and they burned it. I mean, you could have sold that for a lot of money. It was evil. It had to be rooted out. But what did they do? They they sacrificed. Was that all in vain? Was it in vain for them to to, to do that? How, How could they do away with such wealth? Perhaps some of these believers were those who were in the trade of making and selling idols. Remember, Paul wreaked havoc on their economy. And they had to give up their entire way of living in order to be faithful for Christ. They're poor now. Ephesus was a city booming because of the idols. And all of a sudden, I can't make and sell idols. My career, the only thing I know how to do is gone. I have went from being a good tradesman to a pauper overnight. Is it worth it? Perhaps, as many of these believers turned to this strange religion, they were disinherited by their families. We still see that today, don't we? Perhaps their family said to them, no, you you no longer belong to us since you follow this strange God. And that means that you no longer are a recipient of this inheritance. You see, these Ephesian believers, just like us, needed to know and to be persuaded, to be convinced that they were in fact rich with a glorious inheritance no matter what their life was like on earth. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, knowing the riches that were theirs in Christ was a substantial defense against the allurement of the riches of Ephesus. Dear friends, knowing the riches that we have in Christ is a defense against sinfully being allured to the riches of America. And fifthly, doubting your inheritance will even affect your holiness and your your righteous living. This, This is how practical this theology is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. A resurrected body is a part of our inheritance. And Paul says, if we don't receive that, let us just enjoy life to the fullest. Now, some of you are probably thinking you're more holy than Paul because you say, I would follow Christ even if I didn't have an inheritance. Paul said, if I don't have an inheritance, I'm enjoying life to the fullest. This is what he said. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If I don't get a resurrected body, I'm not suffering. I'm not fighting beasts at Ephesus. I'm not being imprisoned. I'm not being getting my head chopped off for this. 
I think it's only in an American context where we think that way, where Christianity actually is gain for us as opposed to costing us. Those who are not convinced of their inheritance will, in fact, desire to fulfill as much pleasure as possible in this life. Who is going to be concerned with holiness and righteousness when they have a few short years on earth and then nothing to look forward to in the grave? We must be convinced that we have an inheritance and that our inheritance is better than the pleasure that sin promises. When we give into temptation to sin because of the pleasure we think it will bring, what are we believing in that moment? We are believing that the pleasure of that sin is greater than the inheritance that God has provided for us. When a person forsakes Christ to follow after worldly pleasures, what are they declaring? They are saying that I believe that sin in this life is far better than the inheritance that God provides in this world and in the world to come. Sin will bring me more joy and satisfaction than all the good things that God has provided for me here in this life and the next. So you see, our view of of our inheritance even affects our holiness and our righteousness. If we are convinced that, that no sinful pleasure or no sinful thing can bring us greater joy and satisfaction than the richest of our glorious inheritance, then we will be willing to deny sinful desires for the sake of the good to come. And we see how critical it is to be totally convinced of this inheritance. Not just intellectually, but for this to be a conviction of our heart that this is actually true and real. So how do we become more persuaded of this truth? Do we need more facts? Do we need more information? No, we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to remove the bias against this truth and to impress this truth upon our hearts. And this is what Paul prays for. And Paul is praying for this because no man can do this for you. No information can do this for you. This is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit removes the bias and impresses the truth upon the heart in a convicting way. Great men of God often fall. Men with with giant intellects have all the information they can have in their heads. But they fall into scandalous sins. Why? Is it because they did not know enough information? They didn't have enough facts in their head? No. They, they needed the Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of their hearts to the reality that the riches of their glorious inheritance in Christ is of far greater worth than any pleasure to be found on earth. I think of a man like Ravi Zacharias. 
A man who could hold his own own intellectually in any crowd. But after his death, shown to be living a scandalous lifestyle. Were you going to tell that man to read the Bible more? Was that his issue? Did he not know the Scriptures? Was he not convinced that the Scripture was true? No, dear friends. What, what, What caused that man to live that way It wasn't the lack of information in his head. He had it there. But what he needed was for the Holy Spirit to take that information and impress it upon his heart. What he needed impressed upon his heart was the fact that the glorious inheritance in the life to come is greater than any sexual pleasure here and now. He was not convinced of that. And his lack of being convinced of that caused him to sinfully pursue pleasure, potentially at the cost of his even faith, of his faith even. Men and women who know their Bibles well, intellectual giants, often struggle to live faithfully day in and day out because it requires sacrifice and to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God in every area of life is difficult. And how many know what God requires? but fail to do it every single day. Not that anyone is perfect. But what is needed most? Is it it, it simply more information? No. Those who are struggling to be faithful on a a daily basis, perhaps they need more information, but, but what they need most is to have the truth impressed upon their hearts that the glorious inheritance they have obtained is of far greater worth and value and joy and comfort than any lack of sacrifice here and now. What they need to know, what they need rather, is to have the Holy Spirit enlighten the eyes of their hearts to the reality that the riches of their glorious inheritance in Christ is so great that no amount of suffering or sacrifice in this life can be compared to the glory to come. Dear friends, this is what we all need for the Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts the reality that we have obtained a glorious inheritance that we are guaranteed to acquire possession of it and as we've seen this affects every area of our lives as Christians according to Paul's prayer he believed this was one of the the, 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 the things that, that the Ephesian believers needed to know most what they most needed was to know their glorious inheritance Dear friends, I, once again, I, I can't open your eyes or my own eyes to this. The best I can do this morning is to make you aware of this need and pray for you just like Paul did. This, this, dear friends, this is why you pray before you read your Bible. Because you can't understand it rightly on your own. And you can't apply it to your heart on your own. You can't impress it upon your heart in a convincing and convicting way on your own. You need to rely on the Spirit for this. We must all pray to this end. Recognizing this great need that we have that we are not able to fulfill in and of ourselves. 
And may we pray daily that God would open our hearts to the truth and impress the truth upon our hearts so that we may know the hope to which we've been called and that we may know and be convinced of the glorious inheritance we have in Christ. And dear friends, this will affect our very lives. It will affect the way we live. It will affect the way we work. It will affect the things that we fear and don't fear. There's no area of our Christian lives that are untouched by our hope, our lack of hope, and the glorious inheritance we have obtained. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we express our dependence upon You to enlighten the eyes of the hearts of each and every person in here today. Father, help us to know without a shadow of doubt the richest, the glorious inheritance we have obtained. And may this cause us to live our lives for Christ without reserve. May this cause us to, to, to live for Your glory. May this cause us to, to not fear death. May this cause us to to think it no no great thing to to sacrifice and suffer in this life for, for Your sake. May it cause us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.